This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Okay. So let's just say that you and your partner get a lifetime choice. One chore that is now and forever always yours. You always have to do this. Nobody else. And then there's another that you'll never have to do again. What are you choosing? For me, I'm happy always to clean the bathroom. <gasps> it is it is calming, and you really feel <laughs> wow. I love the shock, That's and you so really funny. feel like no because accomplished. I have I have thoughts. It's like a multi stage process that I feel really accomplished about afterward. I would never ever 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 again do the laundry. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we have Vincent. Thoughts. Vincent, uh, that the task I would assign, which I would never ever do again, is cleaning the bathroom. That's so I interesting hate that every we both, we all... second of it. I hate I hate the grime. I hate the fact that it can never get truly clean. Um, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Sisyphean, and I just don't want to deal. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, f- for me, already, I never <laughs> clean the bathroom. Yeah, he always cleans the bathroom. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, so it's like it's not just wish fulfillment. Like I'd never again do that. This is actually on the ground happening. This is happening. That's where we're at. That's the state of the union. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Critics at Large, <laughs> a new podcast from the New Yorker. I'm Vincent Cunningham. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Alex Schwartz. And we're all staff writers at the New Yorker. Each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. It's a funny thing, right? In art and in life, some of our biggest questions about sex and gender and equality get boiled down to that stubborn unit, the couple, capital T, capital C. The couple in art has always been kind of a rich space for politics. It seems like every time our culture goes through a big reassessment of gender roles, it often gets worked out in movies about marriages. Historically, there's been no shortage of art about specifically straight couples in which the man in the couple exerts his dominance over a partner. I think we've gotten really good, especially in recent years, at uh, portraying a man with too much power, a woman with too little. Uh, But today we're talking about a new exploration of the couple that's showing up uh, in the aftermath of Me Too. In two new movies um, and two new couples therein where the woman holds the reins of a relationship. How do these films explore the fallout of that imbalance in private life? When romance and work come together in art, what do we learn? More to the point, are couples okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let's investigate. We'll fi- you'll find out only here on we, Critics Alert. We will give a definitive answer <laughs> to this question. <laughs> I kind of wonder if we want to actually make our case a bit before we dive in. Could you guys think of examples of art where the couple becomes the battleground for these big ideas about gender and power? I mean, there's obviously so many. Uh, I was thinking when we were talking about doing uh, an episode about couples and art, I immediately went to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, (laughs) that or Dalby (laughs) play from 1962 uh, that was made into a film starting... um, 
real-life couple, then-real-life couple, Elizabeth Taylor and, and Richard Burton in 1966. And the match seemed practical, too. For a while, Daddy really thought that George minute, had the Martha. stuff to take over when he was Wait ready a minute, to retire. Martha. And we both thought that naturally... Stop it, Martha. Oh, what you want. I wouldn't go on with this if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't, would you? As a kind of, like, pre-feminist revolution example of a couple really laying it all <laughs> on the <laughs> table <laughs> yeah. and the dynamics of power they're in uh, coming to the forefront in ways that are, you know, shocking and melodramatic. Mm, I had more of a romantic take on this question. You know, mm. if you're just asking about favorite couples, of course, my mind goes to the entire work of Jane Austen. Yes. Oh, yeah. um, you know, not to state the obvious, but but there it is. Um, although, really, that's all about formation of couples and not about how they actually work once the couple right. is formed. Very conveniently, the right. curtain goes down as shit gets real. Speaking of, you know, the Jane Austen going into a marriage, I was thinking about on the way out, Kramer versus Kramer, oh, yeah. Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. Which yeah, I just rewatched like a couple months ago. It holds up. It holds up, yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, in the way that movies aren't really made anymore, it's sort of a like strip from the headlines. Like people are starting to think about divorce. And so let's make a movie, you know, yeah. where, you know, where the where the woman is the lever and it's all these kind of these new questions that are in society like, just sort of went straight into that movie in a way that um, made it hit so hard and still hit so hard. Mm. Guys, eat. Ted, I'm leaving you. Ted. Keys. Here are my keys. Here's my American Express card. Here's my Bloomingdale's credit card. Here's my checkbook. I've taken $2,000 out of our savings account because that's what I had in the bank when we first got married. Was this some kind of joke? Here's the cleaning. Here's the laundry ticket. You can pick them both up on Saturday. You. You have to pick them up on Saturday. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I was thinking of another example where, where... it's interesting where you can see really the shifts over time that uh, have happened to the figure of the heterosexual couple. You know, we have uh, Ingmar Bergman's scenes from A Marriage from mm-hmm. 1974, which was remade uh, a couple of years ago for HBO with Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac. You know, it's kind of an instructive Example of the the shifting mores and landscape of what has happened to um, heterosexual coupledom. It's become this project, right? This thing that you work on. We're working on our marriage. It's this multi-billion dollar industry. There's self-help books and couples therapy and workshops and podcasts and apps and TV shows. It's a huge business. And you see that as a problem. So, yes, as we've been talking about, the couple in art has always been kind of a rich space for politics. So let's talk about how those politics are showing up on screen right now. We all just watched a new film called Anatomy of a Fall. It's directed by the French director Justine Trier. Uh, It premiered at Cannes earlier this year, and it won the Palme d'Or. It's out now in theaters. Um, Alex, I'm wondering if you could give us a synopsis Give us a, an outlay of this movie. And you know I love a good synopsis. I love a synopsis. Yes, she loves a synopsis. I try, I try my best. I, re- <laughs> I try my best to, to give good synopsis. Um, so, right. Um, the movie opens with Sandra Voiter, who is a writer, played by the fabulous German actress Sandra Huller. Amazing. Amazing, amazing um, performance in this movie. 
She is a writer. She lives in a chalet in the French Alps with her husband and their preteen son. Um, at the start of the movie, she's being interviewed by, it seems, a graduate student who wants to talk about her writing. And then the interview is cut short when, unseen somewhere above in the chalet, her husband begins to blast music at such an ear-splitting volume <laughs> that no conversation can possibly take place. Yeah. Interview ends. Uh, her Their son goes out the door to walk his dog. And what we next see is that Sandra's husband has fallen to his death and is found by the son by the side of the chalet. Who did it? Immediately, suspicion falls on Sandra herself, um, who she is indicted and has to stand trial. And the big plot question of the movie is, did Sandra push her husband out the window? If so, why? What was the nature of their relationship that would have led to this drastic action? And the only alternative is that her husband not just fell, but but decided to to jump. So as you can see, an accidental fall is going to be hard to defend, given the height of the windowsill. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's an investigation for uh, more suspects uh, and your, your, your most suspicious deaths yeah. Yeah, and your témoin assisté because you were the only person there. Okay. And of course, you're his wife. Um, now, looking for a stranger who walks in, kills him while you were sleeping right above and Daniel was up for work is a shitty strategy. Samuel had no enemies. That Stop. Stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. The movie becomes a very uh, twisty sort of take on the he said, she said, but there is no he around to say. There right. is just a she who wants to say what she believed happened, even when it doesn't look flattering to her, which, of course, in a trial is no good. Right. Um, so throw that, throw a very honest German into the mix. Oh, <laughs> um, God. Just the most German character yeah, I've ever German, seen. Yeah, super German. Just like, yeah. yeah An yeah. honest German in beautiful sweaters. Let's... In beautiful sweaters. Mm -hmm. Not um, as beautiful as in the movie Passages, but... Well, well we, we can definitely yeah. talk sweaters. Um, yeah. But let's, you know, let's <laughs> give her some... They're, they're pretty good sweaters. One of the really interesting things about the movie just sort of um, is the way that it's shot, right? So there are these long sort of almost evidentiary shots that like you want to look at every sort of part of the frame because you're looking for mm -hmm. something that might tip you off. Mm -hmm. And they almost seem like to present like a bird's eye objectivity, right? And on the other hand, there's all this subjective talk of, you know, who was where. And it almost seems to be like a metaphor for like the thing that's inescapable in a partnership is that there's always sides and you always wish, you know, you ever get, you know, sometimes you get to an argument with your partner and you're like, I just wish I could replay the tape to show you that mm -hmm. you were the, right. you mm -hmm. were the aggressor. Mm -hmm. in right. this, you started it, right. you know, and you, it's never right. quite clear in this movie. Right. It's it sort of on a visual level sort of flirts with the idea that maybe like one day you could know. Yeah. yeah. Nomi, what were your, some, some of your like initial impressions of this movie beyond the sweaters of it all. I mean, I I liked this movie a lot. I thought it was very smart. And I, um, in some ways, you know, it's a curious thing because this movie is a, it's not a whodunit exactly. It's like, it's a mystery, right? There's there's only two answers to this, right? You know, is she a murderer? Is she not a murderer, right? Is she innocent or guilty? But to me, it was fascinating, fascinating how the movie opened up to so much more 
than that um, in terms of how it dealt with the couple dynamics. And a climactic scene in the movie is where we see towards the end of it a flashback of uh, a kind of decisive argument that happened between Sandra and her husband right before he fell to his death. And what seemed really interesting to me and that really captured me was that it showed a couple where both people have a desire to talk honestly about the relationship and it makes it possible for us as viewers to see the kind of inner workings of couplehood in a much more open and gray area way, in a way that I think is quite rare. So, you know, the argument that we see them having, Mm -hmm. some of the stuff that's worth spelling out is that Sandra, we know she's a writer. We've said she's a writer, but also she really is a full-time writer. She's doing some childcare. We see her cooking around the house, this kind of thing. But it emerges in the course of the movie that it was Samuel who was not only doing most of the childcare, but actually of his own volition homeschooling their son, Daniel. He, you know, he goes for a couple of days to school in Grenoble to socialize, but mainly he's schooled at home. And Samuel himself wanted to write, but never was able to produce the great work that he hoped he might produce. Had worked on a novel for a long, long time. Just sort of a picture of frustration. Yes. A A failure to launch as an artist. A picture of artistic frustration. And the question really is, what does Sandra owe him? Does she owe her ability to produce art? Is he the traditional wife? You know, Um, often I think people say like, and this has become a little bit of a trope. I wonder if you guys have heard this too around writers or whatever. They'll say like women writers, men writers, whoever will say like, oh, I wish I had a wife. Meaning I wish I had like, you know, someone to keep house and to enable my work and to be the equivalent of, you know, Tolstoy's wife or whatever, so that the great man, whoever it is, and the couple can go scribbling and the other person can make their life happen. It's really hard to find that dynamic <laughs> a in good the wife, present. A good wife or husband is hard is to hard find. It's hard to find, indeed. <laughs> yeah. um, the f- total unsatisfying, unfulfilling nature of being squished in that position becomes super apparent when someone who never thought that they'd have to deal with being in that position, um, you know, like a man, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is put into it. and. Right. What the movie does for me that I love is there's no real satisfaction in the role flip. Like, it doesn't feel great to see someone feeling unfulfilled and cut off from creativity by the drudgery of daily life. And I've been thinking a lot about how this is maybe too big, (laughs) too big a thought to just throw out. But, you know, how some of these roles that have traditionally been performed by men and women need to really just be coded as adult roles. Like it's an adult's responsibility to take care of the child and it's an adult's responsibility to um, keep house and it's an adult's responsibility to have to do work. And and if your work is creative, then those things, too, you know, how these kind of things can be recoded instead of like, you know, now it's time for the men to take over (laughs) uh, the household stuff is is just a better way to share. And this couple has clearly not found that balance. I don't know who has particularly. But, um, you know, the other notable thing to me about the movie is the way that the woman kind of won't give ground and not in a cruel way, just in an honest way. Um, Just, you know, in this confrontation that they have, won't say, oh, my God, you're right. I need to make it easier for you. She just says, no, this is something you need to deal with for yourself. Um, And it's, it's very unsettling. 
I think, when and, it happens. And as you say, it's very adult. What I like about this movie, too, is that there, it's like it's not allegorical, but everything that sa- it gets said seems like a corollary for something that it means to be just alive and engaged with yeah. another person. It's like the 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 uh, her uh, very got, she's got a lawyer with a great haircut. And at one point he points to this bruise on her arm and he says, you know, it looks like there might have been a fight, a struggle. And it's like, but that's what it is. That's what it is to be with somebody else. It's a fight. It's a struggle. And if you're an adult, you have to engage in it. In a minute, we'll answer a big question. Is there such a thing as a good bad man? Critics at Large will be right back. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So thinking about Samuel, the sort of frustrated, good guy, coded caretaker, <laughs> um, it strikes me that he's exemplary of a kind of trope that you might call a good, bad man. Um, who is this guy? Do, have we seen him in other places? Yeah, I totally think you're right that this is becoming a trope. Like the the man who considers himself feminist wants to enable the work of his female partner, you know, take care of stuff around the house. But when it's not totally working out for him, turns on a dime and um, just becomes hostile or aggressive or sulky, basically can't fully practice what he preaches, but kind <laughs> right. of wants the cred. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is a figure that uh, is cropping up now, as we said, and, and it's most recently cropped up in the movie uh, that just recently premiered on Netflix, Fair Play, the debut feature film by Chloe Dumont, starring uh, Phoebe Dynavor, uh that we know from Bridgerton and Alden Ehrenreich, and... Uh, I think it really starts out with a kind of figure of the good bad man um, and then devolves very quickly. Into, <laughs> you know, the the turn happens really quickly to right. the kind of like, uh, you know, uh, aggressor. Um, good goes bad. It goes bad. Yeah. Good. Very good quickly. boy gone bad. Good boy gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what we have in this movie is two sexy young professionals. Mm-hmm. Um Luke and Emily, who both work at an investment bank, and they're at the same level uh, professionally, and uh, they have been having, have been carrying on a secret relationship. They can't reveal it to their coworkers because it's not allowed under uh, company 
policy to date your coworkers. Uh, but in fact, they're absolutely in love with each other. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, they become engaged. Um, and then, uh, you know, the turn of the screw, um, Luke is expecting to be promoted in the job. Uh, and instead, da, 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 Emily is promoted. <laughs> and, you know, that's not good for the relationship. What was that? Campbell needs to hear from you. Okay, but... And it needs to happen now. an apology before you ask for a favor. The hooker comment didn't exactly sit well last night. This is time sensitive. So are my feelings. Are you going to pitch him for me or not? I don't think it's a good idea. Why? He's not in that kind of headspace. Okay, so put him in it. How? I don't know. You must have some kind of influence now that you made him your buddy. He's not my buddy. He's my boss. That's kind of hard to tell. You know it's just a game. Mm-hmm. You play it very well. Wow. Well, that doesn't sound like a compliment. This whole thing was your idea. Basically, the relationship devolves into hell on earth (laughs) because (laughs) the seemingly supportive Luke actually has a lot of frustration that his efforts at his job haven't been recognized. And instead, Emily, who he suddenly begins to suspect is actually, you know, has been slutty and has sort of like maybe slept her way to the top, right. you know, got the in the boss's good graces by being like a hot young woman, uh, has taken the the sort of plump position away from him. And it's, it's a very different movie, uh, than Anatomy of a Fall. If Anatomy of a Fall was a kind of cerebral European exploration, sensitive, subtle exploration, (laughs) what we have in Fair Play is a very pulpy, very melodramatic uh, depiction of the couple unit in ways that reminded me of a kind of like 80s erotic thriller maybe, you know, like uh, uh, Fatal Attraction or, you know, or, or a Lifetime movie i think vincent you suggested that there were shades of lifetime There's, movie it's, it's to giving it. lifetime it's giving sure. lifetime it's giving like blood sex violence uh all things i just want to remind you that you've previously said on the record of the pod you enjoy i do enjoy it but you know what <laughs> i enjoy it when the movie fully commits to it and i think this movie it it doesn't embrace it's campiness as much as I wanted it to embrace it. And I, I feel like what happens with Fair Play is that it's trying to kind of like make a cogent comment. And I think in some ways I can see it a little bit, but it's also so incredibly melodramatic, but not in a way that has the courage of its convictions to be total trash. Yeah. It's, it strikes me that this kind of movie is on some level trying to be about women and power. Yeah. But ends up kind of being more about the man like about the man and his sort of descent into whatever it is hostility passive aggression Alex what did you think about Luke Okay well so what did I think about Luke you know so Luke is Luke is a charmer who has a skeevy side from the start. I mean, yeah. he's disgusting. He's a hey baby type. He's just like, you know, hey baby. Just <laughs> 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 fiance. Hey baby like, type. Another like, thing I have to worry about potentially being. Please continue. <laughs> 
<laughs> Vincent, you could as, never. As the good bad man of this podcast. You could <laughs> you could never. You're the good good man of this Th- podcast. You know, Luke is dealing poor and let's feel a little bit for Luke. Poor Luke is dealing with so many archetypes of what it means to be man. So many different things flying Especially past his in cute Wall little Street. head. You know, what can he do with them? So on the one hand, right, he has the Wall Street, you know, Gordon Gecko like Yeah, just go go go. This is a male culture. It's all about how big your balls are, you know, about, fratty. Yeah, it's fratty, exactly. It's fratty. fratty. Um, so we get that he has to participate in that kind of culture. And then on the other hand, you know, he's um, – the thing that I find super skeevy about him from the start is he wants to be seen as kind of magnanimous within the space of the relationship, not just at work. Like he proposes in a truly creepy way to his girlfriend. Can we talk about that can I just the very say, start let's of talk the about movie. That, that can scene. we just say – uh, yeah, can we just talk about that? Let's talk about it. Okay. I'm talking about it. You guys come talk they're about at, it with me. Luke okay. and Emily are at, at the beginning of the party. At it's the, his sorry, at the beginning wedding. of the movie, they're at his brother's wedding. Please go on. Yes. The, Emily is wearing a little uh, – A slip. A, sli- a silky little number. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it is a number. So um, Luke, uh, there's a stumble of some kind that happens. A large diamond ring spills out upon the floor. And it's revealed that this is an engagement ring, you know, surprise. Wait, can we talk about Wait, why? Can we talk about something why? happens should before I, the ring comes should out. I come, should oh, does I the come, sex happen they're first? They're in the part, yeah. Oh, my God. It's the most, okay. They're so, in the bathroom. I'm sorry that I forgot the sequence. Okay, so oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I, I just want to make sure we've talked about it. Okay, I'm not trying to skip over it prudishly. I for, forgot the sequence. I didn't know if you thought that was a spoiler. We, so it's not, we got to talk about a this. A spoiler cannot happen, but by definition, something that happens like in the first five minutes of the movie cannot be a spoiler. So, basically, they're on the sink. So they're in the bathroom. They repair to the bathroom because the whole uh, point the movie is trying to make at the beginning is how they're like unbelievably horny for each other. They just can't get enough. They can't get enough. (laughs) And so they go to the bathroom. She's hoisted. He hoists her like the big man that he is on Mm -hmm. the sink. Uh, She, (laughs) you know, gets rid of her, you know, unmentionables. And he goes to town, you know, he, he... Am I allowed to say eats her out? And, yes, please. Uh, and, uh, and Does he? He's down there for 1.1 well, 1 second. Okay, so he's down there for 1.1 1. 1 second. Long enough. It's, so a, it's a gestural thing. It's a, it's Well, she she can't get enough, Alex. She is in ecstasy within two seconds, by the way. She can't get enough, but it's – okay, I'm just saying it's a gestural thing. And maybe that's part of the character detail that he's the kind of guy who wants no, to make but, a show of how generous, you know, and, but and what I sexy love is pro-woman he is. He emerges from between her spread thighs – his mouth uh, uh, is is dripping with her menstrual blood. Sorry, it's true. It is. It's that. And I think it's. And I think it's, it's a big true. thing in the movie. I think it's a big thing in the movie. Actually, okay, Vincent. Okay, it, it's about. I think it's supposed to be about power. I think it's supposed to be whatever. I think you're right. It's like a sort of whatever the opposite thing that a man does, like to make you know, whatever. Again, can we say this? It's like a money shot or something. Yeah. It's like a, he's the one who's being sort of abased in the situation. Um, uh, it's not a spoiler to say that there is other blood later on. Yes. You know. Um, and I I think that it is like a a, a moment of stretching for. Uh, at the it shows us at the beginning that it's trying to. Turn something on his head. I yeah. think. Yeah, it's really. Yeah? It's just that the, the the movie to me is very unstable in its movement from the sort of like melodramatic allegory to the 
realism of right. the relationship and the depiction of the milieu and so on. That's fine. But all I want to say about this, you know, about the sex is that to me, it is part of the character detail of the good bad man. It is part I totally of— I agree. Yeah, it's, it's part of—and that's why I think the, the fact that it lasts for no time at all is significant. It's like wanting to get credit for being, yeah. you know, a good guy. I find it creepy that anything in sex could, like, give you moral credit for being a good— person like i find that that's like one of the weirdest codings of cunnilingus that exists yeah. right Someone now calls you like a generous lover it means like yeah that you're just but like there's also like a sex. coding of like like if i go down on you then i you know then i'm a like great dude i find that bizarre like sexual attraction has nothing to do with morality like period it's very very weird um yeah but i think the culture like indeed is showing that like if someone you know if a guy wants to go down on a woman then he's this really generous like caring type and i think i think maybe viewed most generously that is a detail of this guy's character. I'm going to do something for you. Yeah, right. I don't need anything in return. I'm not grossed out. Like, I am a good, cool guy, which, of course, the second that Emily gets the promotion that right. he so covets goes to hell. I mean, like, one thing for me – so a huge difference for, between these movies, not simply on the quality level. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but one huge difference is, like – the different reactions between Emily and Sandra to the discontent of their male partners. Yes. Like a huge part of Anatomy of a Fall, again, we see it in retrospect, but a huge part of it is that Sandra is really like, you know, it's kind of individual responsibility to the max in the space of a relationship, which I'm not sure if that can really work in a practical sense, but is something quite powerful um, where she won't change her own, you know, she won't change her behavior to compensate the sad a wit, feelings. Right. A wit. Yeah. To compensate the sad feelings of her husband. Whereas Emily, in a much more youthful, American, whatever you want to supply in here way, is made super, super anxious by the fact that Luke is down in the dumps. She offers to do a host of unethical things, including, like, feeding him information that will help him out at work. Um, you know, she tries to, like, do her best to comfort him when he's feeling bad. Right. She she kind of goes into a panic about how she can bring him out of this really, like, you know— Yeah, and sort of, like, level the power balance that has been right. created, right? right. Because right. it's about how that imbalance has shaken— the the you know the 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 structure of the couple and so she is in a kind of i have to say yeah understandable way she's like how can i make this better you know because it's it's jarring to both of them you know it's so funny that both of these texts um address this issue of imbalance or whatever in terms of work it's like uh when it's unclear who's in charge it's like the workplace is in charge. That's and we're, so interesting. And, and we're all sort of struggling toward fulfillment in this arena that becomes the real sort of like context for the relationship. I yeah. mean, the work thing is really interesting because, you know, I've, one thing I've been asking myself is in what ways are these like post Me Too texts? Like how does Me Too come into it? Because Me Too is such a – me Too has become such a big sprawling term for anything having to do with gender imbalance and aggression against women. And, you know, but it did start out as a bunch of women saying, I'm being harassed in the workplace. I'm being mistreated. I mean, I'm talking about the 2017 That's edition right. of Me Too, yes. like the, you know, the one that made headlines. Um you know, that the work – I have a problem in the workplace. I'm not getting taken seriously. In fact, I'm being harassed. There's a whole series of obstacles that men don't know anything about. And I feel like the way that the private world collided with that was a bit um, – the response of, you know, men writ large, can you say this, was, 
oh, God, how horrifying, how shocking, this is terrible. And I think what some of these works are trying to do is to say, well, when that becomes your problem specifically, like you as a man, when this big stuff that's going on becomes your problem, how are you going to handle it? You know, like I think the whole point of a character like Luke is that he really does see himself as a good guy. Like he really does think I'm a good guy. I'm doing it all by the book. Everything's cool. But when this problem comes front and center to him, um, he handles it terribly. So when you really get down to it, is there really such a thing as a truly equal couple? We'll answer that timeless question when we're back on Critics at Large from The New York. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So what are these films saying about power, right? Like, do they arrive at some some new consensus? I, I think one of the questions is, is it good for any partner in a relationship to have either no power or to have too much power? I wonder, or are there different kinds of power in a relationship that sort of we might parse? I guess it could be good if that was the agreement of the couple, you know? Like, um, each couple has their own kind of contract and their own sense of what works. I think what is so interesting is that this is a moment when people say they want equality and they may even feel that they want equality. But what would it mean when equality might mean like someone else has more and you have less and it all works out to what it was would have been in a different iteration. But, you know, it's not exactly a 50 50 split. Like, what does that mean? Um, Are you willing to give up more to enable equality? Uh, The classic. That's another classic timeless question. (laughs) And, yeah, like, there is some kind of cultural consensus that, like, men are not really able to do it because they keep getting slammed in movies like this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think on the other hand, though, there is kind of, you know, we've—I don't know if you guys have seen this TikTok trend of the trad wife, you know. Oh, the trad wife, sure. Young women who uh, want to go back to, quote-unquote, the way things were, tradition. Um, Like, to women just, you know, choosing to be— the homemaker, you know, we're sick of like the gains made by feminism. It's it's a rough deal for women because now they have to be both do stuff at home, you know, right. and have to be like power bosses in the world. And so how about we just get back to the way it was in the homestead, <laughs> you know, in like Little House on the Prairie or something in yeah. Ma- Wood Ma and Pa, where it's like, let's just throw the whole discussion of equality you know, out with the bathwater, it's so impossible to even reach that, that let's just go back to the way things were, quote unquote. To be clear, these memes are things where these young women uh, 
often very young, are saying things like, "Yeah, they you know, can be like girlfriend, re- boyfriend. Right. It doesn't necessarily need to be a wife or with kids or anything." But sometimes it is. It's often I've I've seen like young wives that are like, "Sometimes you know, it's wives, for me, yeah. it's a relief when my husband tells me how to vote." Like these incredibly yeah. retrograde things. It's like yeah. almost. It seems like some kind of. It's almost like a psyop. hoax or something. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, but it's interesting because I think I think part of it at least stems from this kind of frustration. Is like, Ugh, this is impossible. You know, it's impossible. To ever, as you say, Alex, reach, you know, what does equality mean? Like, this is, let's just, like, wipe the slate clean and, like, scrub the, t- I'll, I'll, I'll do the laundry and I'll clean the bathroom <laughs> as long as you make money outside, you know, and you'll tell me how to vote. Um, yeah, it's, you know, this is all making me think of, have you guys seen Adam's Rib, that, um, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn movie. I've actually never seen it. I haven't. Can you please tell us about it? Yeah, we need to have a watch party. It's from it's from 1949, and it's about a, a couple who are lawyers. And at the beginning of the movie, a different a different couple, a woman, um, finds out that her husband is having an affair, and um, Spencer Tracy's character is to rep- his job is to represent the man, and Catherine Hepburn's character represents the woman. And mm-hmm. you know, Catherine Hepburn's character is pointing out all sorts of ways in which assumptions about men and women are not the same. Why don't you let him go by? Now look, all I'm trying to say is that there are lots of things that a man can do, and in society's eyes, it's all hunky dory. A woman does the same thing, the same, mind you, and she's an outcast. Finished. No. Now, I'm not blaming you personally, Adam, because this is so. Oh, well, that's awfully large of you. No, no, it's not your fault. All I'm saying is, why let this deplorable system seep into our courts of law where women are supposed to be equal? Mostly, I think, females get advantages. We don't want advantages. And so all the problems of society is in these movies come into their own bedroom. Mm -hmm. Like they were happily married couple. They considered themselves to be equal. And then all of a sudden, the fact that that's not how the world works kind of infects them. Like, yeah, this is a screwball comedy and ends with, you know, in a delightful, happy way. But I just think it's like these issues have been around for so long. And now they're coming up, um, you know, in murder mysteries and in in our – in our time, um, yeah, in a sort of like the 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 bloody underbelly, right? Rather than just like in a domestic comedy or in a yeah, it's yeah. I think it's really interesting. I mean, you know, we saw Shiv and Tom, right? Mm-hmm. The iconic yes couple, married the first couple, couple of succession. Yeah, the first couple of succession, <laughs> where the the question of a power imbalance and the kind of like back and forth sniping and underhanded double crossing uh obviously a, a kind of a, a, like a very cynical version of what it means to be in a couple relation in a straight couple relationship that is infected by power struggles that are larger than that unit yeah the wonderful thing about shiv and tom is like I don't think Tom is really a good bad man um, because I think Tom would is, was delighted for Shiv to have like, you know, he would have been delighted for her to have more and more and more and all the power. And he just simply – Tom just simply wanted, you know, her son to shine on him a bit every so often, right. you know, to feel some some emotional love from her as opposed to like – Yeah. And I, I just – I remember this <laughs> – I remember this scene where uh, – He's like, talk dirty to me. And she's like, yeah, I hate disaster. you, you fucking loser. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it disaster. kind of devolves from a kind of like sexy talk, you know, mean sexy talk into like plain mean talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's. Uh, it, I thought about this in terms of um, fair play, though, because I was waiting. So there's this thing of like, he's basically sexually impotent. He can't. Yeah. 
get aroused by this woman who has a, achieved power over him or sort of uh, supremacy in this relationship over him. Whereas with Tom and Shiv, there is always this element of almost like call it kink where he's turned on by it. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I kept waiting for Luke to like sort of sort of like it. There was a moment when you know, there's a kind of sexy moment when Emily is just like standing by his desk and telling him what to do. Yeah, yes. at least it was sexy to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, get into this, man. You don't you don't like it at all. She's like, and then oh, could you go get this from the printer and this and that? I'm like, yeah, tell him. Tell him. He did and, not and like he it, wasn't, Vincent. He couldn't, he couldn't get into it. That and also like started like telling her what to wear. Terrible. Terrible. You yeah. look like a cupcake, he tells her. He, yes. he, what, which, what does that which, even mean? Which, what does that even mean? What does it even mean? I guess um, it was like her lacy collars. But yes. <laughs> anyway. I, my last question for you guys is like, we started this conversation talking about how we sort of distilled big social questions down to the form of the couple. Um is that necessary? Like, are can you imagine? And maybe this does happen sometimes. Um, but it, could a movie or any art form sort of play this out on the big structural level that we that it really exists on? Or do we need this? This do we need the couple as a metaphor for this? It's both. It's both. It's not like it really only exists on a big level, and this is like a shorthand artistic way of looking at it. I really don't believe that because, right. especially, we're talking about issues between men and women, gender issues, and so like yeah, the the thing about the couple, like the hetero couple, is that that is the you know a basic unit where some of these questions get worked out. And the other thing about a romantic couple is that people feel you know when it, people feel that they're they're most sincere or do they you know when they're mm-hmm. when they're with their significant other like in a purportedly functional relationship you're supposed to be most yourself um and your distinctive person not in the role of man or in the role of woman you're just who you are and you're with your partner but it's not possible for that to be the case or sometimes it's not possible or sometimes it is possible and sometimes it isn't in that kind of instability how the outside world infects the private space yeah i think is what is so interesting that's why i love anatomy of a fall because um i think they sincerely went into this arrangement with open eyes and best intentions but the outside world and the way that um you know status works because she's perceived as a great artist and he isn't infects the inner space um right. yeah. takes on that taint I mean, I like that interstitial moment between systems and individuals, right? I think we talked about this last time in our Licoré episode that everyone should listen to if they haven't yet. Um, yeah, to me, there is no interest in, in system qua system. It really comes alive for me in the kind of interaction between individuals. And I think with these movies, we can see that we're both matter. I also think a lot of times people think that they're behaving as individuals and it's like, nope, that's systemic. You're part of the problem. (laughs) (laughs) But do you know what is like totally clear and easy to parse? Mm. That Critics at Large from The New Yorker is a perfect social arrangement. Just three podcasters in perfect harmony. That's wonderful. Having fun every week. Hanging out, shooting the shit. Unless we totally disagree. And, And when we do, we fix it. And Unless we don't. <laughs> <laughs> if, one like of us, fr- if one of us doesn't show up to this podcast, I like a little friction. <laughs> I like a little friction. You said this from the start. I like a little sand in my oyster. Let's you love see. friction. So before we sign off today, uh, I thought we would talk just a little bit about the poet, the great poet, Louise Glick who we lost last Friday, October 13. She's, of course, a winner of the Nobel Prize Literature, um, one of the great poets of 
this century, last century. Uh, I know that uh, many of our listeners probably uh, have a part of their heart that belongs to Louise Click. I wonder um, if that's true for you guys, too. For me, it really is. Um, I love the writing of Louise Glick and its precision and its brilliance, which is, I mean, intelligence, but also a kind of shining, glowing quality that's hard to put into words um, and just the wild imagination of it. Um, yeah, I, oh, I, you know, I'm thinking right now just off the top of my head of her book, The Wild Iris, mm-hmm. and speaking in the voice of flowers and and how much I love that whole conceit and the way that she does it. Um, I love her work. Unfortunately, I'm not too familiar with Glick's work, but now I'll definitely be reading it. Vincent, do you want to tell us a little bit maybe about how it was when you first read Glick's work, how you felt about it? I got all of my great um, first literary exposures from my same English teacher uh, in high school. Her name was uh, Deborah Stanford, uh, Hyma Stanford, um, <laughs> who introduced me to Toni Morrison and to Flannery O'Connor and to Adrian Rich and to, I think, in the same unit that I was uh, exposed to Adrian Rich was to Louise Glick. Um, and so many of them were framed for me not as like, so many of the poems that is not as sort of grand structural statements of um, feminist sensibility or sort of containers for identity politics, but as um, dispatches from the sort of front lines of heterosexuality often, you know, how um, strange and weird it is to share space and sometimes a bed with a man. Um, as a as a young boy who had shared space nor bed with anybody, I was still <laughs> I was still riveted by this this sort of um, the way that you could render this um, directly, but also elusively and with a sort of edge of mystery um, and danger and love. Hmm. Uh, but let's end with one of. Glick's great poems, uh, one of my favorites. It's called Theory of Memory. Long, long ago, before I was a tormented artist, afflicted with longing yet incapable of forming durable attachments, long before this, I was a glorious ruler, uniting all of a divided country. So I was told by the fortune teller who examined my palm. Great things, she said, are ahead of you, or perhaps behind you. It's difficult to be sure. And yet, she added, What is the difference? Right now you are a child holding hands with a fortune teller. All the rest is hypothesis and dream. Critics at Large is a co-production of The New Yorker and Condé Nast Entertainment. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby. Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Steven Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music. We had engineering help today from Gabe Caroga, and this episode was mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider following Critics at Large from The New Yorker wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Thursday. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.